0: So much going on. We mentioned New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy considering cash incentives to get people vaccinated. Uh, meantime, Japanese Prime Minister uh, Yoshihiro Suga uh, extending a state of emergency that covers Tokyo. I do wonder what will happen ultimately, Tim, with the Olymp- Olympics. Right now, global cases, 156.1 million deaths exceeding three and a
1: quarter million. Yeah, it's a different story inside the United States where vaccinations continue to be administered, though they are down from their peak significantly. Let's get all in, into all that and more with Dr. Hale Paz. See- CEO at Wexner Medical Center, also Chancellor of Health Affairs at The Ohio State University. He joins us on the phone from Columbus, Ohio. Dr. Paz, thanks so much for, for coming back on the show. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity. Well, let's get right into it and, and talk specifically uh, about incentives that are being set up here in the United States or thought about in the United States to get people to that 70% or even 85% of American adults vaccinated. Uh, Governor Phil Murphy, the governor of New Jersey, said that everything is on the table, including beer, savings bonds, free baseball game tickets, (laughs) and even cash. Uh, Is this the right way to get people who are hesitant about vaccines vaccinated?
2: I think anything we can do to get an individual vaccinated is incredibly important because In As much as we want to achieve herd immunity, we know that an individual that's vaccinated is going to be protected to the greatest degree possible from becoming infected with COVID. And we've seen from other parts of the world what can happen very, very quickly, particularly because of these variants, these mutated forms of the virus and what it can do in countries like India. And you just mentioned a few minutes ago the concerns in, in Japan. So the more individuals we can vaccinate, that's another individual that hopefully the vaccine will prevent them from becoming seriously ill and even worse being hospitalized or dying. That's number one. Number two, vaccinated individuals are gonna be less likely to spread the disease to somebody else. And number three, there are just so many more things that they will be able to do as part of activities of daily living. The CDC just came out with this infogram that shows what they recommend a vaccinated person can do versus someone that's not vaccinated in terms of socially being active, being with family and friends, dining, all these things that are so important to us. Mm-hmm. It's a simple process, showing up and getting a vaccine once or twice, depending on which one you get.
0: Dr. Paz, I'm gonna tell you though, like Tim and I have had conversations with intelligent people um, who are concerned about getting the vaccine for numerous reasons. Are, who will say, yeah, ultimately, I'm going to get it, but I'm just not going to get it yet. And so what 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 would you say to these individuals? I mean, Tim and I feel lucky we have a, a conversation with somebody very smart from the medical community every day, a doctor like yourself. What do you say to individuals who are nervous about the vaccine?
2: I, I would say that in my mind, there has never been a rollout of, of a new tre- treatment or a drug or a vaccination that has been under this scrutiny, level of scrutiny, as these vaccines, and the degree in which they're being watched uh, is unprecedented. And the best example I can give is the concern that caused the pause in the J&J vaccine. There were some cases that were identified of women were all very familiar with those reports, and that caused the FDA and the CDC to pause the the J&J vaccine until there was more information to better understand what was going on. That should give all of us assurance that this is being carefully monitored. And when you weigh the risk benefit, and this is really the Mm -hmm. crux of the matter, the risk benefit of getting COVID-19 and winding up in the hospital, winding up on a ventilator and even potentially dying, or the risk of getting vaccinated, For me, as a physician, and as I advise patients, family, and friends, that decision is very, very clear. Mm. And I've been vaccinated. My family, my entire family's been vaccinated. It, to me, is a very simple decision. And I've urged everyone, unless there is some real medical reason, and there are some very rare cases like that where they, they can't get vaccinated, I've advised everyone to get vaccinated because nobody wants to get a serious case of this virus and this illness. And we're seeing what's going on right now in India. And, you know, mm. part of that is the thinking was they made it through the first several surges. And now look at what's going on in that country. And the question is, these may, you know, what, why is that happening? These are individuals that may, be, we don't have all the data yet. It's possible they had the infection on the first go around, mild, cases of infection. It's a younger population. They don't have the kind of obesity that other parts of the world, they may have had mild or asymptomatic cases. But now this variant is coming back through the country. And you look at the number of infected individuals that have been identified, there may be others that haven't been identified. And you look at the number of individuals and just the photographs in the film on, on TV, and you see what's going on there. What better example can we think of, as tragic as that is, for every American to go out and get
1: vaccinated? Dr. Paz, we only have about 40 seconds left and then we're going to come back sure. with you. But I'm, I'm, I'm wondering about messaging when it comes to benefits of the vaccine, because it does seem like there's been a real missed opportunity with people continuing to wear masks outside, even though we know with the science and with being vaccinated, among other things, it, it's not necess- you don't necessarily need to be that cautious. We only have about 20 seconds here.
2: So yes if, if you are uh, if you're vaccinated you no longer need to wear a mask outdoors you can visit other fully vaccinated people indoors without masks right. in small numbers I mean that's that's a huge advantage right there. Let's get
0: back to Dr. Harold Paz. He's Executive Vice President, Chancellor for Health Affairs at The Ohio State University, CEO of Wexner Medical Center. It's a massive enterprise, hospitals, College of Medicine, research, and more. He was also the former Chief Medical Officer over at Aetna, still with us on the phone from Columbus, Ohio. Dr. Paz, one thing i we wanted to ask you, because I know when we talked with you in January, it was just coming off of some news that you guys had discovered a new variant of COVID-19. There's a bunch of variants out there. Um, what do we need to be smart about or understand when it comes to variants? And I would assume that there's more to come?
2: Yeah, so uh, the virus will continue to uh, mutate, and there will continue to be variants. Uh, you know, this, this variant that... Uh, is of great concern now is B117, uh, the the UK variant. The reason it's of concern is it's much more contagious. And the other concern is some of these variants could become more lethal as well. Uh, Oftentimes we see that a virus gets more contagious, it gets less lethal, but if it does both at the same time, that's extremely concerning. So again, that's why we wanna get out in front of these variants by vaccinating as many people as we can. If we do that, then we stop the virus from spreading from person to person to person, and we reduce the likelihood of the virus actually mutating. That's the goal here, and that's why the goal was to achieve herd immunity um, to prevent that type of an event from occurring.
1: Dr. Paz, the worst case scenario could be a variant that emerges that could get past or so-called break through the vaccine. Is there any indication that, that that could happen or is happening now?
2: Well, what we we need to do is to prepare for uh, mutations that are not well covered by the existing vaccines, and that's where the booster vaccine will become important. And I think we should all be prepared for a world where we do get periodic booster vaccines. You know, the interesting thing is that's part of normal life for so many different things. We're all used to getting a flu vaccine every year, and hopefully everybody does do that. We also get booster vaccines for our tetanus vaccine every five years. We get booster vaccines if we've been immunized for, he- for hepatitis, if we need to. We, you know, we can have shingles, we can have chickenpox as a child, but later in, in adult life, we get a resurgence of that, we call it shingles. There's a vaccine for that, too. I don't think there's anything. I mean, this is a tragic, tragic set of circumstances, but it is a virus. And with vaccines we would deal with it the same way we deal with any other virus for which we have a vaccine so we're going to get used to this frame of mind where periodically we come in and we get a booster and the boosters designed around the kind of variants that are out there that's what we do with the flu vaccine every year we know that the flu Mm. uh, has mutations and we develop a very tailor-made specific vaccine for that year's flu
0: when it comes to a booster is it going to be crucial that we really watch the timing on that? Because I do wonder if, you know, once our, once our immunity goes away from these first two shots that we got or the first shot if you got a and j vaccine, does your immunity just go to zero? How does that work?
2: Yeah, so without getting too technical, there are two types of immunity. There is the antibody immunity mm-hmm. and then there's cellular immunity. That's where we have cells in our body. They're called T cells, for example, that can be part of this response to kill the virus. The the issue here is more about a variant that can bypass our current immunity, get around all that. So that's where the booster is important. It may not be that our immunity has waned or has gone away. It may be that our antibodies are not trained for that variant. The booster will create new antibodies and new cellular immunity that will attack the variant virus. That's what we are. That's what we want to be able to do here. And I think, again, for those of us that have already had our first two vaccines, or in the case of Johnson Johnson, one vaccine, mm-hmm. we want to make sure that as soon as these boosters are developed and, and obviously have approval from either emergency use authorization from the FDA or totally approved by the FDA, that we would go out and get our boosters.
0: Sounds like my vaccine card is going to continue to get filled. Yeah, don't laminate it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Dr. Harold Poss, thank you so much. Uh, A great voice and has been over the uh, life of this pandemic. CEO at Wexner Medical Center, Chancellor of Health Affairs at The Ohio State University, with us once again from Columbus, Ohio.
1: This is Bloomberg Business Week
0: with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic. On Bloomberg Radio. Well, it is time now for today's Bloomberg Big Take. It's the Bloomberg exclusive you need to be focusing on and that only we've got. It also happens to be a story featured in the magazine this week, Tim, and it's about the anti-Asian hate crime capital of North America. Turns out it's Vancouver. I did not know
1: that. I did not know that until reading this either. Natalie Obiko Pearson is Vancouver Vancouver Bureau Chief, and she joins us now on the phone from Vancouver, British Columbia. Natalie, um... Can you take us through the history of people of Asian descent in Vancouver and in Canada?
3: Sure. And and to your point, I think a lot of people in Vancouver aren't aware that they are the hate crime capital (laughs) of North America. I mean, this this city is very, very multicultural, and it's always thought of itself as this sort of progressive bastion. We have a very long history of Asian immigration starting over a century ago. In fact, the city wouldn't even exist if it weren't for Chinese laborers who built the railway that created this city. Uh, But along with that history comes a very deep uneasy one, Um, you know uh, those Chinese laborers, two of them died for every mile of that railway that was built and since then there have been waves of immigration that have been um, that have faced a lot of uh, resistance, some of Canada's worst excesses against Asian communities all took root here a ban on Chinese immigration for decades, a head tax on Chinese migrants and during World War II, 22,000 Japanese who were interned here so there is a
0: very deep dark history All right. So a deep, dark history that has been there for a long time, as you just so eloquently described to us. And yet, in the last year during the pandemic, it really reared its ugly head.
3: Absolutely. And I think the thing here is, you know, COVID, like many places, was a trigger. But in Vancouver, particularly, it tapped into tensions that have been building over, I'd say, the last two to three decades. So the latest chapter of this, of of Asian, anti-Asian bias, probably took root about two or three months, about three decades ago, when Hong Kong was going to revert to Chinese rule, and you had a lot of wealthy migrants coming over and and putting down um, roots here, that essentially changed what had previously been perceived as an immigrant underclass into this new elite, sort of this very wealthy uh, elite that that changed the face of the city. I think few cities in the world have kind of seen the transformation that Vancouver has from Asian immigration and money. It went from this sort of industrial backwater into this glittering cosmopolis of like shiny new condo towers and luxury boutiques. And that has really fed resentment.
1: But a point that you make is the numbers just aren't there for for who owns who owns what
3: that's right so this the you know about 2014 we had this very acute run-up in housing prices and housing affordability has been a like public issue number one The narrative that took hold was that Asian buyers, and particularly Chinese buyers, were responsible for driving that run-up, and yet the data was really never there to back that. Um, Even at its peak, it wasn't the kind of numbers that would sway a market where, you know, 42,000 transactions were happening a year, and yet you know, housing affordability is a really complex issue. Many of the drivers, you can't see interest rates or supply issues. But what took hold was a very easy scapegoat. All these rich Chinese coming in and buying up our houses and sitting in these mansions that stay empty when they go back to China. And so that that very much, I think, fed into what we've seen in the past year.
0: So where are where's the leadership in all of this political or otherwise
3: i would say that this is this is really a cautionary tale for that very reason the leadership in this region during that helped stoke that debate about asian money inflating housing prices here they uh went they they conducted this uh, dirty money probe a money laundering effort that actually you know it, it made Asian wealth synonymous with illicit wealth. That was one very corrosive thing. And then they also attributed the run-up in housing prices to dirty money coming into the region. And there really, once again, was no data to definitively back that. Um, and so I think they, you know, it, it inadvertently, they might have stoked this debate without meaning to, but I think it does beg the question, you know, you have to look back and see how how this all how this narrative came about and the role that policymakers played in it.
1: Is there any sort of, of movement happening right now uh, to raise awareness of what's going on there? And I'm only basing this on my experience of being in the United States when we have seen a dramatic rise in anti-Asian hate crimes here. And mm-hmm. I look, I'll, I'll say it again before reading this. I thought the U.S. was unique in this, um, but it's but it's but it's not. Uh, what is the public discourse about this right now?
3: Well, you know, Canada predictably has been very vociferous in sort of condemning these types of attacks. But I think you do have to, like, for for all of your public statements about, you know, this is not Canadian and this is not what we stand for, you have to ask, how is it that the most liberal corner of Canada ended up becoming the hate crime capital? And to what role did liberals... Play uh, play play a part in feeding this very sort of insidious narrative that that stoked anti Asian bias. So I I do think this these figures will probably come as a shock to the city today.
0: How bad has it gotten in terms of you you talk about some specific people in your story? Yeah,
3: it's it is it is quite alarming. I mean mm-hmm. I, I I'm half Asian and I've experienced this myself firsthand. Um, People accosting me at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, you know, sort of berating me for wearing a face mask and asking which front lines work I'd stolen it from. Um, And just when the people I've interviewed and other Asian friends that I have here, we talk about how it's, especially when you're sort of walking alone on the street, it makes you think twice.
1: But some of the people you interviewed and you feature in the story said to you, this is not surprising to me because this is what I've experienced my entire life and in fact didn't even report the incidents.
3: Absolutely. And so there, I mean, I wanted to make a distinction. Since the since the COVID pandemic started, this latest wave has definitely been more virulent. It's been Mm. more in your face, but the underlying sentiment has been there for a very long time. So one of the things that Trixie Ling, one of the women that I spoke to who was spat on at, at the beginning of the pandemic, she, I think she put it really well. It's, it's, Surprising, and yet at the same time, it's not surprising for Asians here. Uh, you know, they've been right. a very aware of this race, this undercurrent, for a long time. It's just the viciousness of it in the last year that has really surprised people.
0: Well, an enlightening and disturbing story at the same time. Natalie, thank you so much. Bloomberg News, Vancouver Bureau Chief Natalie Obiko Pearson, joining us on the phone from Vancouver, British Columbia. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Oh, yeah. Our most read story on the Bloomberg in the past eight hours. It's about job growth. Disappointing. Had to be.
1: It had to be. I mean, this was I I say it again. It was jaw dropping. The biggest miss. In absolute terms, on record.
0: Listen, we were talking about a million. We were talking about the possibility of some estimates of 2 million, and then we got 266,000 and a revised downward number for the March increase. So let's get into it, see what she's seeing. Irina Novoselsky is CEO of Career Builder, which for more than 20 years has been helping global companies hire global workers. She's back with us on the phone in New York City. Happy Friday.
4: Happy Friday, Carol. Good to be
0: back. Well, good to have you here. And listen, we love having folks like you on because we get a number like we got this Friday, uh, Friday morning, quite shocking, quite disappointing uh, in terms of expectations that uh, it was going to kind of support that the economy is increasingly getting back on track. How do you see it? How does it support what you are seeing and what you do in the companies that you're working with?
4: Carol, this number is a little bit confusing to what's happening underneath the surface. Uh, I'll give you an example. So we have 50% more supply of candidates in the market than pre-pandemic, right? Our our unemployment rate is still almost double than what it was. So you would think that that is great for companies that are looking to hire. And our demand is above pre-pandemic levels, almost 20% higher than the pre-pandemic start. However... We're seeing companies have openings that are going unfilled. And, and that's only exercised even more if you've seen that NFIB index that is it's at a 48-year high of job openings, 44% of SMB job openings. Are unfilled versus an average of twenty two percent over the last forty eight years, and it's did you say forty percent? Did supply.
0: you say forty percent?
4: Forty four percent. Forty four percent. It is a forty eight year high. It used to be twenty two percent on average run unfilled. and this is during wow. a pandemic. Mm-hmm. It it it's honestly just unprecedented to see this kind of supply and demand mismatch. And when you look and you say, is it? It's not demand. There's definitely supply. It's the workforce isn't re-engaging, and, and and that's driven by multiple things. Well, it's let's yeah, let's talk about benefits.
1: well, let's talk about what those multiple things are because the the explanation that the U.S. Chamber of Commerce would give is that it's extent enhanced unemployment benefits. And Janet Yellen would say no. Exactly, and that's and so would so would Jerome Powell. He absolutely would say no. It's a mix of factors. What's your take, Arena?
4: It's definitely a mix of factors, and it's it's not one thing. So one, yes, unemployment benefits extended is helping because you're making more in many cases by being unemployed than going back into frontline working roles. However, also 70% of schools are in some form of hybrid system right now where you're a little bit in school, a little bit not, a little remote, which is having big impact on parents and figuring out how to manage that. And then lastly, and this issue, I'm not seeing being talked about as much. And we talked about this pre-pandemic, but what's happened with COVID? It has materially accelerated technology and industry shift. If you think about how we all buy today, I mean, it's completely different than what it was a year and a half ago. And it's affected almost every single industry. And what it's done is it's expedited the skills gap that we saw that was going to be a problem in 15, 20 years. Well, it's a problem now. The workforce of tomorrow doesn't really exist today. And and we're seeing, I'll give you some interesting stats that we saw that was really just highlighting this imbalance that's happening. And for example, a software developer. Today, for every software developer today, there's 24 open roles. Hmm. For every waitress or server, there's 22 open roles. So 22 companies are vying for the same person. A nurse is at 53 right now. I mean, the, and we're seeing this across Does- Several different categories.
1: Does this have wage growth written all over it?
4: In in certain pockets, yes. But you know the the other side of that is it depends because if you're starting to move more remote, one of the conversations we're having with a lot of our clients is what salaries are you paying? Are you paying the salaries of that role where the company's headquartered or where this yeah. remote worker is potentially living?
1: What are they doing? So there's, there's what are they doing?
4: Movement. Mm. It's unclear. Uh, It depends on the demand. And so one of the things that we're seeing, it's actually shifting from a geography based wage conversation to much more driven by demand. And so if you're looking at numbers like it's 53 jobs for every potential nurse, it's going to start impacting what you're willing to pay a nurse in a certain area if you need them there.
0: So Janet Yellen did. Or on site. Well, you know, Irina, you did say it's multiple reasons. Janet Yellen said, um, and I'm looking for the quote that I wrote down, but I think she specifically said she doesn't think the unemployment benefits are impacting um, the employment picture. Doesn't think unemployment benefits are hurting hiring specifically. How much of it do you think is that?
4: Here's here's why I say it's a mix of it. When you look at the server waitress category, mm-hmm. there's definitely an impact from unemployment that's impacting in some way. Because when we're looking at it, again, that 48-year high I mentioned with SMB and majority of them are frontline COVID-impacted roles. We're looking at waitresses and servers where for every role, there's 22 job openings for every person. So in in many ways, it is impacting it. But then when you're looking a little bit more upper funnel, higher salary roles, it's not impacting the software developers as much it's not impacting right. the the nurse occupations as much and so that's why it's hmm. it's underneath the surface and it's getting max, ma- masked with this overall picture of an yeah. an employment number or a jobs number that's just not carrying the true just, story of what's happening
1: just so so briefly here um when it comes to the the servers and the waiters and waitresses you speak of is part of it just saying hey i don't want to risk getting the virus i don't feel comfortable being around people who are not wearing masks and and being close to them, serving them food. How big of a part is that? And just got about 30 seconds.
4: I mean, the vaccination rollout is is definitely a part of it. When you look across the country, the states with higher vaccination rolled out have higher um, servers coming back to. The workforce. And then when you look at it by a state-by-state state basis, some of the unemployment benefits are anywhere from 12 to $19 an hour. And so depending on the state that you're in, you're making the decision based on that. But again, mm-hmm. it's not him only based on unemployment, because we're seeing this supply-demand imbalance happening in categories that really aren't as touched by these frontline COVID-impacted industries as much. We're seeing it happen in industries that have seen continued and pretty steady growth throughout right.
0: COVID. Well, if it continues, we'll start to see it maybe potentially impo- impact productivity and, and yeah. GDP growth. Hey, Irina, thank you so much. Have a great weekend. Irina Novoselsky, she is CEO of Career uh joining us on the phone in New York City. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. So there's another story in the magazine this week. Uh, Tim and I were talking about it among ourselves uh, earlier this week. Of course, the new issue is out. It's about how Facebook already, Tim, we know, has lots of adults, and now they're going after our kids.
1: Yeah, they are. I was thinking about this, too, how big of a deal it was that Facebook bought Instagram for $1 billion, considering how big of a part of its business it has become. Fortunately, we have Kurt Wagner joining us, technology reporter at Bloomberg News, on the phone from San Francisco. Uh, Kurt, I'm I'm wondering about the strategy here when it comes to... Facebook for kids and that the thing that the Instagram for kids, excuse me, the thing that I think about is is gateway drug. <laughs> uh,
5: sort of. Yeah, I think there's <laughs> a two part strategy, right? I think there's the here Facebook is, is doing the world a favor in their minds, which is they say, hey, listen, a lot of preteens are already using social media. Um, they're using it without any parental oversight they're they're lying about their age right to create an instagram account and we're creating this app that's going to solve that problem right it's going to give them that kind of social media experience but it's going to do it in a safe way and and kids are going to like that and parents are going to like that now the other reason they're doing this of course is that this is a great opportunity for them to get 10 11 12 year olds using their app Uh, before they can then graduate to the app where they show them all the ads and, you know, hopefully they buy things with shopping and all that stuff. So there's definitely a benefit to Facebook doing this. But they, of course, would also like you to know that they're trying to solve a problem that already exists, uh, which is that kids are already using Instagram.
0: Yeah. uh, uh, Critics, (laughs) what are they saying about this move?
5: Well, there's a a, a lot of critics, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the two main arguments, which which I think are both very valid, is one, you know, what is this going to do to uh, a preteen's mental health? Right. If you're 10 years old and suddenly, you know, you're caring about how much people like your photo or what someone commented on your photo or you know you're looking and you're comparing yourself to celebrities or whoever you you may be following you have to imagine that has some mental health uh, impact Mm -hmm. on someone who's that young and I think that's a real concern now the second part is around data and privacy what exactly is Facebook going to collect uh, from your 10 year old who has this app and are they going to keep it safe right we've seen Facebook have tons of data security issues there's been leaks There have been uh, there's instances where they simply let the data walk right out the front door. Um, And so do you want your 10 year old's, you know, name, email address, whatever it may be uh, on a server at Facebook headquarters? um, Is that going to be a safe thing for them to do? And there's a lot of people who say absolutely not.
0: I guess what I would want to do is poll Mark Zuckerberg and other senior executives uh, at Facebook and say, so are your kids going to be on Instagram tween or teen or whatever you call it?
5: Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a totally valid question. Uh, Zuckerberg has said he has, he has two daughters. I think the oldest is five. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he said that his daughter uses their Messenger Kids app to kind of like wow. talk with her cousins, right? Like maybe she'll do a video chat mm-hmm. with grandma or whatever. Um, but, you know, Instagram's a totally different beast, right? I don't think there's a lot of people who think a five-year-old should be on Instagram. I, I don't think he'd probably put his five-year-old on Instagram, but... You know, the way they're thinking about this is messenger kids is kind of relevant to six, seven, eight year olds. Right. As they're starting to video chat with grandma and grandpa. Mm. And then once they get to eight years old, they want to graduate to something that feels a little bit cooler. And that's where this Instagram youth is what they're calling it. Instagram youth would come
1: in. Yeah. Where does where does TikTok come into all of this, Kurt? And to, to what extent is this a reaction, if at all, to TikTok? We know about Instagram reels. It's Facebook's attempt at, at, at what TikTok does. But is that part of the strategy here?
5: I don't know if that's the motivation. I mean, Messenger Kids has been around for about four years, a little less. But so clearly Facebook was thinking about this before uh, TikTok became a real threat to them. But at the same time, if you think about, you know, you have your 10 year old and you're a parent and you say, okay, well, they want to use social media and there's a a safe, quote unquote, safe Instagram or there's this unsafe TikTok like, hey, maybe the parent's going to say, sure, you can put. Instagram youth on your iPad, right? And suddenly, that's the first experience the 10 year old has. And so when they become 13, they they stick with Instagram instead of TikTok. Now, most kids, as you know, use everything, right? So, doesn't necessarily mean that, uh, you know, they're not going to use TikTok, but it could certainly be a way for Facebook to get its products in the hands of these kids much earlier than it would otherwise be allowed.
0: Hey, Kurt, just one last question, a reminder, though, of how important Instagram is to the Facebook story. And if they can grab kids now, uh, this is maybe, you know, revenue, you know, drivers, you know, for years to come.
5: Absolutely. I mean, they've said they don't want to put ads in this app. They're not going to show ads to kids uh, under 13. But, you know, the hope is that they love this product and then they use the main app and that's where mm-hmm. they do show ads. And so Instagram has been a huge, huge, huge part of Facebook's growth, both for users, but also for, for its business. Uh, it's hard to really overstate how important Instagram is to them. So, you know, this is a chance to, to road uh, yeah. on ramp, excuse me, kids onto, you know, what is becoming their, their most valuable product. And, and so you can see why they want to do that.
0: I, I believe Tim called it the gateway drug.
1: Yeah, I did. And you look, I, did. Think, <laughs> I think Instagram really is like, the, it's going to go down as the greatest acquisition in, in the history. Well, I mean, uh, definitely of the last decade, but uh, maybe in the history of Silicon Valley. Like, it's so, like, Facebook would be lost without it. And it
0: makes me think of our conversation with Scott Galloway about kind of breaking up some of the big tech and yeah. unleashing some value within some of these names. Kurt Wagner, that story in the current issue of Bloomberg ba- Business Week magazine on newsstands, online, and on the Bloomberg. Kurt Wagner is tech. Yes, indeed, it is Uh, time for the drive to the close. And Charlie, of course, breaking down the trade on this Jobs Friday and quite a day and certainly some optimism, risk trade on. There is, I guess, some calmness to some extent about those inflation concerns and the reflation trade to some extent. But uh, you are seeing pretty much the Dow and the S&P at its highs of the day. The Nasdaq a little bit lower, but it's up the most on a percentage basis, Tim, up about nine-tenths of a percent. So tech really providing support for today's trade.
1: Yeah, let's get right to it with David Dietz, Managing Principal and Senior Portfolio Strategist at PPAC Private Wealth Management. He joins us on the phone from Summit, New Jersey. He has $8 billion under management at PPAC Private Wealth Management. Dave Dietz, what a surprise jobs report this morning. How does that change your outlook for how the economy looks in 2021?
6: Well, you know, we are not really making any wholesale changes in the, uh, portfolio i think for a couple reasons you know the first one is i think the diminished job creation is due to really short term temporary factors I look at three things that may have played a role. One is, you know, lack of child care. People would like to get back to work, but they still don't have, you know, the daycare and the schools and so forth that can take care of their kids. Obviously, it's a controversial issue, but certainly having this governmental financial assistance for the jobless and so forth can't help in terms of incentivizing getting back to work, but that should end by September 1. And, of course, I think there's still people we know are fearful that, They're more likely to get the COVID if they get back outside into the workforce. So some of those are short-term factors. Of course, we can't make too much of these, Tim, because the numbers of jobs that were created this month were still less than uh, February and March when those factors were still in play. Mm -hmm. Hey,
0: David, how does this coincide with what we've been hearing from CEOs about the labor market and the outlook?
6: Well, I mean, you know, that's a frustrating thing because uh, the CEOs are saying, gee, we've got to work. We just can't find the workers. And here, of course, we didn't see the job creation we wanted that you think you would have had given this demand from corporate America. But that, again, plays into those three theories as to why people are not responding rather to the demand for workers because of these uh, existential factors, including the, the child care
1: and, and, and getting sick if you get back out there. Yeah, it's just there's there is this disconnect. I still feel mm, like between what like we it. heard from from companies in the earnings. Like it's it's not just you know Chipotle CEO who we spoke to a few weeks ago. It was Uber saying that they are taking a significant hit because of incentives that they're gonna have to pay to to drivers. It's just it's I'm having trouble making sense of it. Well, I mean, that's a good point. Of course, I think Uber and some of the other uh, gig
6: worker companies have some special issues there because uh, there's certainly a a force to try and make them have their gig workers become regular employees and so forth. But, you know, having said that, we did see, Tim, we saw um, more hours worked in April. We saw higher pay uh, more money being made. So Perhaps there's a sense that uh, companies are trying to uh, be very, very efficient here. They've got the work. Uh, They're trying to just uh, push harder the people that they have going right now. And, of course, the other thing to keep in mind is although that unemployment rate tip ticked up. It wasn't because there are job losses, but rather more people came into the workforce, got off the sidelines and are raising their hands for a job. And I think that's a good sign. People don't do that if they think there's no opportunity whatsoever out there.
0: David, portfolios, it's all, you know, very custom and what people's, you know, long-term goals are or what their kind of plans are for either retirement or major, you know, moves in their in their personal lives. I get that. But More broadly, are there things that you are thinking about or the conversations you're having with clients when it comes to portfolio management at this time?
6: Yeah, I think there's two main themes. One is, is it too late? I mean, here we are. You know, the Dow is at another record high today. I think it's their twenty. This is twenty fourth this year, Um, and of course valuations are at the upper edges of what's normal. But the fact of the matter is, you know, what else are you going to do? I talk with people about, well, you know, where are you going to be ten years from now? You're going to get one point five five each year on the ten year Treasury, or you're going to have, you know, a four percent earnings yield on the S and P 500, which traditionally has grown. I think 10 years from now, you'll have a lot more money in the market, so you still want to tilt in that direction. But we all know at some point the Fed is going to have to taper here, and of course, there's going to be taper tantrums. The other main theme here is you always have to be looking forward. You can't look in the rearview mirror. What worked the last few years was the secular tech trade. It's great, but it doesn't have the tailwinds behind it the way other sectors of the economy that should take advantage of a rapidly expanding economy with this wall of stimulus cash coming out with these very low interest rates. So we still think that you should have major positions, perhaps a tilt into the financials, which benefit from higher interest rates, materials, energy, which can benefit from an onset of inflation. And of course, travel and leisure as people re-engage and get out of the home and enjoy, uh, enjoy traveling again.
1: Well, let's talk about some of your, your picks, because I can't believe that I've gone an entire show today without talking about chips uh, Intel is one of the companies... Day ain't over yet. Yeah, day ain't over, exactly. But it's been such a topic, not just this week, but over the last few months. Yeah,
6: I mean, it, this is a KISS stock. We know there's a chip shortage. What is the grandfather of all chip companies?
1: It's well, Intel. Well, that could be the problem, though, right? That it is the grandfather of all chip companies.
6: Well, it is the grandfather. But, you know, I, I think that uh, what I really like is the management change there. Hmm. And, and you've got Pat... Uh, is it Grissinger? Gelsinger. Uh, uh, Jelsinger coming in. And what I like about him, he's kind of like a Steve Jobs type. He's not a financial engineer. He is a real engineer. And I think that's what Intel needs to take their vast resources and and reassert their number one positions in things like autonomous driving, in things like uh, artificial intelligence. Um, I think the opportunities are there. And of course, they are building some more capabilities in the United States. Unfortunately, I think geopolitical tensions are on the rise. You're going to be better off having your facilities here. And of course, valuations do matter, Tim. And you've got a stock that's trading at a discount to the S&P 500. You've got a dividend close to 2.5%, a full 1% more than the 10-year treasury, more than 1% than the S&P 500. So it reminds me you know, of almost Microsoft a decade ago when it was actually a dog of the Dow, and then he brought in new leadership, and off it went. So I like Intel going forward here.
0: Well, it's also to some extent, and Tim and I were talking about this earlier in the week, David, that just like in the airline industry, you have essentially two major manufacturers, Airbus and Boeing. In the chip sector, we used to have a lot more players, but it's really coming down to Intel in the United States in a a big way.
6: Well, they've got some stiff competition with AMD Nvidia and yeah, and AMD. But uh, still, given the shortage, there's plenty of room at the table uh, for everyone, and uh, so that's why I think Intel, on you know uh, a risk reward basis, really looks good going forward to play the tech and also also play the, the reopening and 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 uh, uh, the economy. Well, why Intel over AMD then? Um, so you know. I think that, you know, the, the interesting thing about investing is you're also looking at what's the handicap on each horse. Okay. And here, people have kind of given up intel for dead. I like that valuation, and I like the new management that can refresh, refresh the approach.
1: Okay, just in 30 seconds, talk about Boeing.
6: It- you know, hey, (laughs) it's got to be one of the quintessential plays for the reopening of the economy. What do we all want to do? We want to do that trip that we didn't do at Thanksgiving, that we didn't do last summer. In many cases, it's going to involve getting on an airplane. And it's not just the United States, it's worldwide. And so these uh, airlines, uh, although they can be fragile, there's only two places where they can replenish the fleet. That's Airbus, that's Boeing. And we know uh, from what happened with the 737 MAX, no airline company, wants to put all their chips in any one manufacturer, there's going to be plenty of business for Boeing. They've right. got a backlog that most companies would drool over. And of course, it was over 400. Got it. Now it got a two in front of it.
0: All right, David, have a good weekend. David Dietz over at PPAC, Private Wealth Management.
1: Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com.
0: And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.